0: We are continuing in our sermon series, All Things New, Hope at the Revelation of King Jesus. Uh, we're in chapter 15 now in the book of Revelation, um, so uh, we'll be there. If you need a Bible, uh, there are some on the table out there. And if you don't have one, you can keep that Bible. Uh, it be our gift to you. But um, yeah, if you have a Bible or your phone app for your Bible, get that out, because we'll be jumping around 15 and 16 a little bit uh, this morning. So, uh, I am not very good at waiting uh, on things, and I have found the hardest time to wait for me personally in my life has been like two or a week or two before one of our children was due to be born, like right there at the end, as some of you may know currently <laughs> like it 's really hard to wait you 're like in between this like life altering moment and like trying to get ready for everything, but you don't know what to do because it's like every day it could happen. You're like you, It's not just like you know when it's going to happen, right? So every day you're like, is it going to happen today? I've got all the bags packed, everything's ready to go, and I just have to wait patiently. There's nothing I can do. And you st- feel stuck between this like life-altering thing and, the, you know, being ready to, to to enter into that. So you're kind of like... Well, let's push it out just a little bit because I'm not sure I'm ready yet. But also, let's have it happen right now because I'm ready, right? This tension, right, that we feel. And maybe you have felt some of that tension as a Christian waiting on the Lord Jesus to return. Waiting on him to return. Like just feeling this like, okay, I'm ready. Let's do this thing. Jesus, come back. We have been waiting. We have been waiting And we're waiting too long. Just come back. And then also in moments of like, well, actually, you know, reading this book, I'm not sure I'm ready for Jesus to come back. (laughs) Because it sounds like it's going to be pretty intense. (laughs) Am I ready for that? Well, in chapter 16, uh, it sort of interrupts right in the middle of the, the narrative between 15 and 16. And it says, look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are, keep, are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready, so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. This is the words of Jesus sort of interrupting right in the middle of this section, of this statement of be ready, which it's very much like the interruptions that happened in the last few chapters, but those came a little differently. The last few chapters, the, the interruptions have said this, Revelation 14, 12, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. So some of these interruptions have said, uh, wait patiently, endure persecution. It's going to be a long time, right? But this one says, be ready. I'm coming back like a thief. You don't know when they're coming and they suddenly come. So you have to be ready. And this is the tension of the book of Revelation and indeed of the Christian life. Wait patiently, stay ready. Wait patiently and stay ready. And maybe you have felt this tension as we've walked through the book of Revelation. Wait patiently, but stay ready. How? I'm waiting, Lord Jesus, for you to return. I need you to come back. Look at the world around us, it is broken. It fallen. There is so much disarray. Just come back. and I have to wait patiently. But then there's the flip side of staying ready. Always being ready for the Lord Jesus. Like, am I ready to meet Jesus? Like, do I feel ready to stand before the King of the universe? Have I kept myself pure? Have I loved my neighbor? Have I done these things? Like, all this tension that you feel... In the midst of it. Well, that's what we're going to look at today this tension between waiting patiently and staying ready. So, we're going to be in 15 and 16. We're going to cover this whole section. And if you remember, as we've been walking through this book, the book of Revelation can be divided into seven sections. And these seven sections cover the same time period. They cover the whole time period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So it's not a book that walks chronologically through where you go from one thing to the next, which last week proved for us, right, because of the the way last week ended, right, and and it was judgment wiping out more people than have existed on the planet, right, in terms of the the river of blood that it uh, figuratively described, right? And so there is this... Uh, very clear, overabundance, uh, uh, It's figurative language, over-the-top language to showcase this is the end of the world, right? So the world ends like seven times in the book of Revelation, right? So it's not chronological because there's nothing left if it ends seven times, right? So, so it's looking at these snapshots. Remember, it's kind of like a uh, football play happens and you watch the replay from a whole bunch of different angles. Well, today we're going to cover a whole one of those sections, 15 and 16 is the fifth of those sections. So we'll just have two of those seven sections left uh, in 17 through the end. Uh, And we'll take those a little slower. But this section is very similar to the seven trumpets. This is going to be seven bowls, uh, very similar to the seven trumpets that we covered earlier. So very similar language, covers some of the same things. And the background for it is still the book of Exodus. And the plagues uh, that the Lord puts on the Egyptians in Exodus. So, it kind of frames it this way, uh, starting at the beginning of 15. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. That's one of those markers, right, of changing this section. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them. And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God. The Almighty, just, and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. So, it starts with this introduction to this section with the Song of Moses. Well, this song of Moses comes in the book of Exodus after the people are freed from Egypt, right? If you remember the story of Exodus, we were in Exodus for a very long time, uh, just like the people were in Egypt for a very long time. We weren't in Exodus quite as long, but we were in there for quite some time. But the story of Exodus, remember, God's people are in slavery in Egypt, and they are groaning under their slavery. They are waiting for God to deliver them. And finally, after many years, God does come to deliver them, sends Moses, and, and his, uh, promises this deliverance, and then Moses comes as a baby. So they got to wait longer. It's just waiting more and more. And then Moses finally comes and delivers the people, but when he comes to tell them of their deliverance, they are not sure that they can trust him because they're not sure that the promises of God are true anymore. And so Moses displays for them in vivid picture God's power by coming and bringing these plagues. The Lord brings these plagues on the Egyptians. And each one of these plagues, if you remember way back then uh, when we were talking about this, each one of these plagues, is it's not just sort of random and haphazard where you're like, oh, frogs, that sounds terrible. Uh, yeah, that would be really bad. Frogs would be bad. No, the frogs actually were a, a specific uh, plague upon Egypt because one of their gods, their god of resurrection, was a frog. And so you couldn't kill the frog because that would be like against their religious rules. And so you had all these frogs that you couldn't even kill, right? So it was a, a direct mocking of the gods of Egypt. It was a direct attack upon the gods of Egypt to say, your gods are no gods at all. And these bowls that we're going to see, these Uh, mirror these plagues in a number of ways to say the same thing going after the gods of this world the gods of Babylon to say your gods are no gods this and so what it does is frames the work of Jesus as a sort of new exodus a new deliverance for the people of God And after they are uh, freed from Egypt and cross over the sea, right, and God splits the sea and they cross over, Moses sings this song. And so the reality of this uh, section here is describing what would happen in victory singing over God's deliverance. And so the work of Jesus is put here in the context of the book of Exodus, that the work of Jesus on the cross is a new exodus for God's people. Freeing us from our enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And delivering us into God's kingdom. So, that's kind of the framing of this. Now, the reality is, in Exodus, as I said, it was hard for them to wait for deliverance. Exodus 6, Moses tells them that God has promised them deliverance. And this is what it says. So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, which is, I'm going to deliver you. But they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. They'd become so discouraged that they could not wait on the promise of God. Didn't seem like it was going to happen, didn't seem like it was true. You know, in our waiting for this new Exodus to come, we often feel similar, don't we? We're tempted to believe that these promises of Jesus' return are not true. We're tempted to believe as we look around at the world around us, there's no way that God is in charge and on the throne and doing the, the things that He says He's doing, and there's no way that He's going to make His promises true. I mean, just look around. It snowed in March, right? Like, isn't that how the Christian life feels sometimes? Where you like, are like, oh, things are great. Look at this. This is going really well. And then something happens and you just feel like, nope, Satan wins. No, I've been fighting against my sin over and over and over again and I've had so much victory and then all of a sudden I fall to temptation and fall back into the same pattern again. Promises of God aren't true. I have trusted the church with my life and then a leader hurt me. I have trusted my friends and then they betrayed me. I have faced very real hardship and oppression. Any of those things can shake our faith. Can shake our faith. I mean, there is uh, lots of conversation uh, in, uh, in the world today around what it looks like for, for Christians to deconstruct their faith. Maybe you've heard this term, deconstruct. And many of the stories that people share in that, I say, I understand. May not agree, but I understand. You actually did face real hardship in life. You actually did face real betrayal from churches and from Christian leaders. You actually did say, hey, you guys have said this thing Uh, This is what it means to follow Jesus. And then you don't even apply that in your own life. Why should I? They've seen the hypocrisy of the church, the way in which the church is uh, in bed so much with political forces or any number of things that is happening in the world or the brutality of the world that we live in and have said, guys, I'm done. The waiting is hard. And sometimes we're in this place just like the Israelites who said, nope, it's too brutal. I can't even hope in the promises of God. It's too brutal. I'm going to deconstruct my faith. I'm going to lose my faith. I'm going to run away and go somewhere else. Well, for the Exodus people, they had to wait patiently, but God did show up. They waited a really long time. Like, generations lived and died waiting on the promise of God. But he did show up. He ultimately did, and he powerfully displayed his power and glory in the plagues on Egypt and then in delivering them. And what John is going to do for us in walking through these seven bowls is to showcase to us those plagues that existed in Egypt We're a type of something that is coming that we're living through right now. See, our time is a little different than the Exodus time where they're waiting for God to show up and then he shows up in these powerful ways. Remember what we've been saying throughout the book of Revelation is this is written for the first century church, but also written for you. Like you're experiencing it right now. And so that means that the application of those things applies to you as well. And so these plagues are happening right now, figuratively, in our world. And so let's walk through uh, kind of what uh, John sees here in these plagues and how they apply to us today as we wait. Then I looked and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, tabernacle was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. Remember, seven is a really important number, meaning perfection or completion. So this is the completion of God's wrath, as John said. Uh, they were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. Now, again, This is figurative language, just as we talked about figurative language last week in the wine press of the wrath of God. This now is a bowl full of the wrath of God. I don't even know what that would mean, right? It's a figurative way of saying that the angels are going to dispense God's wrath upon the world. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the angels, Go your ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. So the first angel left the temple and poured out his bowl on the earth, and horrible malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Again, remember, sores and boils was one of the plagues in Egypt, right? And so this is a plague upon, it says, upon those who worship the beast. Those who are of this world, those who are not following Jesus, they are facing uh, hardship. They are facing God's wrath in some way in their life. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and everything in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs and they became blood. Now this is where it's similar to what the trumpets were. There was very similar things happening with the seven trumpets. And if you remember, we talked about then, This most commentators think that this pouring out of uh, uh, the bowls into the waters and the waters becoming blood is symbols for the way in which uh, God's wrath comes upon the economic systems of the world. That this is the provision uh, that the world has in signifying things like famine and other things like that, that are facing hardship in the economic systems of the world. Now, this is going to become probably a little bit more apparent when we get into 17 and 18 and talk more specifically about Babylon, which we've looked at kind of throughout this, right? Babylon represents the beast, the empire, uh, representing Rome at the time, and one of the ways in which John sees the wickedness of Babylon described is through the economic systems of Babylon. And so, uh, money being cursed in this way is very much apparent of what John is seeing here. That the, the provision of this world, uh, the way in which this world functions in these ways, right, the Lord is going to bring his wrath upon because it is done often in wickedness and oppression. Then I heard the angel who had authority over all water saying, You are just, O Holy One, who is, who is and who always was because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. Oh, sorry. And I heard a loud voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, Your judgments are, just, are true and just. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with fire. Everyone was burned by this blast of heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over all these plagues. They did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give Him glory. This is the same that is happening throughout the uh, Exodus, right? These are to display God's power and glory and to call Pharaoh to repent. And Moses gives him opportunity after opportunity and yet it hardens his heart. This is the same thing here. That when God's wrath is poured out upon the earth in any number of ways, those who are not marked by King Jesus, those who are not trusting in King Jesus, those who are not given grace will harden their hearts and not repent. And before we say, well, good thing we're not those folks, we would be apart from the grace of Jesus. Apart from the grace of Jesus, when you see the powerful work of Jesus in the world and God's judgment coming upon the world, what you would do is harden your hearts and run the other way. That's what we would do and is still sometimes what we do. But God's grace is stronger than the hardness of our hearts. And he comes because he's purchased us and loves us and says, No, these my people will listen to me. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. His subjects ground their teeth in anguish, and they cursed the God of heaven. For their pains and sores, but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. Well, the kingdom of the beast, right? The beast and his kingdom represents Babylon, represents the empire, represents any uh, government force where King Jesus isn't physically on the throne, right? Remember, we live in Babylon, guys. And God's judgment will be poured out on Babylon. And we're going to see this very vividly in the next couple... The next section just has a hyper-focus on Babylon. So we're going to get a lot more of what, is it, what does it mean to live in Babylon? What does the empire look like? And how do we live in it in a way that we're faithful to Jesus? We're going to talk a lot more about that. But the result of these plagues is the same as the result of the plagues in Egypt. They didn't repent. They didn't repent. And therefore the sixth and seventh bowl come. Now, most commentators think that the sixth and seventh bowl uh, transition from everything that is happening in the world today and throughout all of church history to the very end of the age, right? So very much talking about the very end before Jesus returns, like right there at the very end. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River and it dried up so that kings... From the east, could march their armies towards the west without hindrance. Remember, earlier on in the Book of Revelation, there's these uh, this angel that's being held, or these angels being held back at the River Euphrates, and then they're let go. Right. So we're not talking about the physical River Euphrates in what is modern-day Iraq today. We're talking about God's people, their enemies lived east of the Euphrates. So what he's talking about is the enemies of God's people are able to come in. This is just uh, figurative language for the enemies of God's people able to come in. Uh, And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. Remember, frogs were important in Egypt, right? Harkening back to the same thing. John's language is always just steeped in the Old Testament and the narratives of God's people. And so that's why some of this language comes out the way it does. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Remember, the false prophet is the other beast out of the land. You guys are going to be so well-versed in Revelation by the end of this. People are going to ask you a question, you're going to be like, boom, there it is, right there. That's what this guy is. Uh, They are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all the rulers of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord on that great day of God the or great judgment day of god the almighty right the forces of evil that we've talked about the beasts of the out of the sea the empire the political forces false prophet false teaching right and the demonic spirit from satan himself go out to deceive the world friends we do not battle against flesh and blood but against principalities and rulers So often, Satan's strategy is either to convince us that everything we face in the world is of Satan. So like you stub your toe and you're like, that was a demon. It's like, no, you just stubbed your toe. It's okay, right? Either a hyper focus on that or an ignoring of it completely. Friends, our world is run by the satanic forces of darkness. That's very real and very apparent. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's at work in the world. Why do we see such brokenness repeating itself over and over again? Because Satan has no new tricks. It's just the same thing over and over again. If I can just deceive people, make them hate themselves, then you know what they'll do? They'll hate other people and they'll hurt other people. That's his strategy. And it's at work in everything in the world. It's at work in all the places of the world, which means we need to stay ready. We need to stay ready. But it also means that we need to wait patiently and endure patiently because we don't battle against flesh and blood. Here's this remarkable thing, guys, that happens in this section, right? Gather them for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day of God the Almighty. Now, we're going to talk about this in a second, right? It's, uh, It's coming up. Well, I'll just go ahead and then, then we'll look back. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so that they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. And the demonic spirits gathered. See how that's like an interruption right in the middle of it, right? Interruptions in Scripture, uh, there's two, two things that you can think. One is, well, that wasn't supposed to be there. Or two, man, that's really important. That's really important. And that's, it's the second one, guys. It's really important. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple, saying, It is finished. Okay, now, how many of you, in thinking about the book of Revelation, or hearing about the book of Revelation, have heard about this battle at Armageddon? Right? Anyone? Anyone? Right? What? Do you see what happens in this battle, according to this section? nothing pour out the seventh bowl it is finished you see we have this uh, idea often where we are going to participate in this battle and so we will participate in this violence against the armies of the world it's not how it happens Jesus says it's done and it's done Jesus shows up, we're going to see later, in a different view of this same battle on a white horse. And he's got a sword. You know where the sword's coming from? His mouth, not his hand. He conquers by his word, not by violence. The way of Satan, the way of the demonic spirits, the way of this world is violence. The way of the lamb is different. Friends, if we are to live in this space, in this time, we have to understand that we follow the lamb wherever he goes, as we said last week. And his way is not the way of violence. It's simply not the way of violence. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to read the rest of this one. Then thunder crashed and rolled, and lightning flashed, and a great earthquake struck, the worst since uh, since people were placed on the earth. This is like the third really, really bad earthquake, right? Like, again, it's just repeating. And every island disappeared and all the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm, and hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. That's a big hailstone. 75 pounds. That's a lot, right? And that's the end of this section. Again, the earthquake. Hailstorms, lightning, that's apocalyptic literature language for end of the world. It's over. Done. And so the focus of this section again is on judgment upon those who follow the the beast and not those who follow the lamb. But right in the middle, Jesus said, right in between, the the demonic forces are gathering and then Jesus is going to crush them, right, by pouring out this bowl and just finishing it is finished, right in between it says, stay ready. Stay ready. Now, if waiting patiently gives this space for us to be tempted to walk away from the promises of God because we're waiting too long, there is also a temptation to this idea of staying ready. Sometimes we take this idea of staying ready. Uh, Maybe it's not right to say that we're too ready Um, Because we can't really be too ready. But maybe if our requirement to wait patiently tempts us to despair and deconstruct, maybe our command to stay ready tempts us to arrogance or to overconstruct. To add on. To be so ready to take things into our own hands. To over-realize the implications of this text. To search for signs of this thing happening right now. Right? When, when Jesus says stay ready, he doesn't mean stay at your window and look for Armageddon. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean grab your newspaper and read what country has invaded what country so that you can be ready so that we can gather in this physical place outside of Jerusalem to have this battle. Like get your plane ticket, be ready. That's not what he means. But sometimes we're tempted to do that. Sometimes we're tempted to take it into our own hands and seek for violence or power to protect the church, right? That we need some sort of power, either political or economic or social power, in order to protect the church. But that's not what stay ready means. Not at all. Stay ready is about us and our hearts. What does he say? He says, stay ready. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. Now, again, this is figurative, not literal. Like, be careful and don't take a shower right before the Armageddon comes because then you're just like, like, that's not what he means here, guys, right? Remember he said earlier, blessed are those who dip their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Clothing in the scriptures is symbolic of the righteousness that we need, the perfection that we need to be entered into the kingdom of God. And without that righteousness, we have nothing. We're naked and ashamed, right? Which is ironically the same, almost the same phrase from creation in which Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, in which God comes. Promises them a deliverer and then clothes them by a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice. That's what he does for us. He clothes us with a bloody sacrifice, his very own son, so that we can be clothed in his righteousness, his perfection. We can actually stand before God holy and blameless because of the perfection of Jesus. So this stay ready isn't about staying ready to look at the signs around us, to worry about what's happening in Babylon, to make sure we know what's going on so that we are, our forces are prepared to make sure uh, we have political allies with Israel or other places to make sure all of these connections. People have made those arguments from these passages and from this book. That's just not what he's saying. What he's saying is to stay ready is to watch your own heart. Guys, the the very sure reality that this book is saying is that Babylon will fall. You don't have to worry about Babylon. Jesus will take care of Babylon. That's his deal. He's going to take care of it. You have to stay ready to follow Jesus. It's so much more about my own sin, my own pride, My idols that are connected to Babylon. My idols of money from Babylon. Of power from Babylon. My idols of greed or of comfort or of immorality. My compromise with the empire. My compromise with Babylon. My compromise with America. My compromise with the culture in which we live. When he says stay ready, what he means is church. Don't look like Babylon. Not prepare for war against Babylon. Don't look like Babylon. Prepare to be clothed with my righteousness. Now, how do we do this? How do we live in this tension of being ready, warring against my own sin, not against other people, but my own sin, Watching out for compromise, looking at those things, and at the very same time, just waiting patiently. It's really hard. How do you stay ready all the time and wait patiently? Right? You guys tried to do that? It doesn't work very well, right? It's like the last week before a baby's born. You're staying ready, but you're waiting patiently. Imagine if you had to do that your whole life. That's the Christian life. It's stretched. It's it's like that last week before a baby comes, stretched out for your whole life. Stay ready. Wait patiently. How do you do that? Well, here's the hint that I think John gives us in this text. 16, 17, he says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple, saying, It is finished. Who's on the throne in the temple? Jesus. When else did Jesus say it is finished? When Jesus had tasted it, he said it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John has already written about it is finished. John wrote it in his gospel. When Jesus dies on the cross, right before he dies, he declares it is finished. And when Jesus comes again... To actually bring about all of our deliverance, to bring about the kingdom, to welcome us home, and to bring about judgment upon the world, he's gonna say, It is finished. And you live between these two, It is finished statements. So live in that tension between it is finished and it is finished. It's how we stay ready, it's how we stay ready, and it's how we wait. We live between this this sense in which we don't quite experience all of everything that we want to with Jesus' return, and yet we do very much experience the reality of forgiveness of sins and the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all of these things. It means we wait on the promises of God. Jesus has said, I'm coming back. I really am. And you can wait on that and you have something even more sure than the Israelites in in Egypt had. They had story. They had the story of Abraham. God said that he was going to do it. He actually told Abraham we were going to come here and we were going to be enslaved and he would deliver us. God already promised it. And guess what? Abraham had a son when he was real old. His wife was way beyond bearing a child. And guess what? God did it. Wait on that promise. You know what you have? You have Exodus. God actually did it. But you have more than that. God built a temple then. God raised up a king. And then even that king wasn't the final king. And he promised a better one. And guess what? You have that. You have the story of Jesus. You have something far more secure than even the Israelites had in waiting on the promise of God. You have assurance that Jesus really did come. He was really born of the Virgin Mary. He really lived a perfect life. He really died on a cross and he really walked out of a tomb. And we're getting real close to Easter and it's my favorite time to talk about the resurrection, obviously, And it's the time in which it's the best time to ask questions of your friends about the resurrection. Because there's no good explanation for why the church exists, why we do anything we do except for Jesus walking out of the tomb. The reason I hold on in the midst of looking at the world and seeing the brokenness of the world and of the church and seeing the hard things and wanting... When I say I understand people deconstructing, I mean I understand it because I have those same thoughts. Like I have those same thoughts of like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. You guys said this, but you live like this. I don't get that. Maybe this thing isn't true. You know what brings me back every time? Jesus walked out of a tomb. He really walked out of a tomb. There's no good explanation other than Jesus walked out of a tomb. And what he said is, I'm coming back. And not only do you have that, you have the Holy Spirit living in you right now. And Jesus said, it's better that I go away and you get the Holy Spirit. And you have more assurance by the Holy Spirit and the scriptures than even the disciples have in seeing Jesus and putting their hands in his side. You have something more sure because the Holy Spirit testifies in your heart. That Jesus is Lord, that He has done it, that He has purchased you, and that He will come back. You gotta cling to that promise. You gotta wait on that promise. That's why we do this every week. Guys, I say the same thing every week. Why do you come back every week? Because we need to wait on the promise. We forget. 10 minutes after you leave this place, you're gonna forget that Jesus walked out of the tomb and you can hold on and wait for his return. So we gotta remind ourselves. We gotta remember. We gotta live life together to remember the truth of what Jesus has done. And then we gotta stay ready by putting on the righteousness that's already been given to us in Jesus. The way we wait patiently here is to know that it's already finished. You see, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are all who are watching for me, who are making clothing to to keep them worthy. Who are sewing clothes together to make sure that they can make it. Who keep their clothes ready. I already gave them to you. You you can't tarnish them because they're not yours. How are you going to lose a salvation that you didn't buy? How are you going to mess up a righteousness that's not even yours, that's Jesus's, who he gave to you? It's already finished, friends. You already have it. Cling to it and now live in it. If it's already yours and you already have it, then yeah, you don't have the power to love your neighbor or to fight your sin or to move from idols to worshiping Jesus. You don't have any of that power. But you know what you do have? Jesus is righteousness who did it in your place already. And that's who you really are. Remember who you really are. You're a son or a daughter of the Most High. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Wait patiently and stay ready because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus has already done everything necessary. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now. And we declare that we are easily tempted to walk away. We're easily tempted to to look at the world around us and say, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. And yet, Your Word tells us over and over again, that's the way it looks until I return. I know exactly what I'm doing. Jesus, would You help us to trust? Would You help us to wait on those promises? And would You help us to stay ready, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so that we can enter into glory? Jesus, would You come quickly? Would You come quickly And make all things new. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.